welcome to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Every fortnight, we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 9, Desire and the Ego. I've been asked to talk about three things tonight. I'll try to put them together for the economy's sake. One of them is how to still desire. That's already ambiguous because it could mean how to keep on desiring or it could mean how to quieten desire. Another one is uh, how to use intelligently the egotism with which you are burdened and the third one is, what is the origin of all true religions? Stilling desire. The assumption is there that there is something which is called desire that deserves stilling. Keeping quiet. My short reply to that, that desire is not to be stilled, but a worthwhile object for it is to be attained. Well, we be attained progressively as we deal with the other two. You cannot still desire absolutely down to nothing. Desire, what is it? It is a force, an energy. You might look at the word desire as meaning from the Father. In which case the Father means God. And God means the absolute power which is the substance and source of all manifest beings, creatures, souls, bodies. We call it the ASP for short, the absolute sentient power. And this power is the father that is referred to in the word desire. When you desire, you are impelled to behave in a certain way. And basically, those of you who have done computer programming will know this, there are a limited number of things you can do. In a computer, you have two, yes and no. And the same way in this desire. The desire is either towards or away from some particular stimulus source. You tend to move in response to a stimulus unless you have already inside you a record of some disastrous results of a previous movement. We could say the error of mankind from Adam onwards has been to equate the yes, the movement towards, with pleasure and then with good, and the movement no, away from a stimulus, with bad. Now this cannot be true because unless you say for whom you cannot adequately analyse the situation. Suppose there is a man sitting on the canal down the road fishing and he has a hook and bait and along comes a carp and bites on the bait and gets a hook. The fish defines a hook as a bad thing and the bait as a good thing. And the angler defines a hook as a good thing and the bait is an unfortunate, necessary expense. So it is entirely relevant to the purpose of a person, a being, a living being, because beings that are not living don't have purposes, that there shall be a viewpoint from which to assess. And the viewpoint cannot be other than relative to some situation so that you cannot actually say that pleasure is a good thing or a bad thing or pain is a bad thing or a good thing you have to decide on a most terribly delicate answer to an infinite problem when you have released all your desire energies you arrive at a certain position we call this position the consummation of days 
You know, in the symbolism of night and day, day means the period of light, the period of intelligent assessment, and night means the period of negation of power. And you make actions according to the energy of the absolute sentient power that is coursing through your organism and making you do things. If you don't think that it does make you do things, then just try a little experiment. Swear by the almighty power of your ego that you will sit still absolutely and do nothing ever. And you might be sufficiently egotistic to believe you have that capacity so to do. But after a time you will find that parts of your organism are twitching. Parts are uncomfortable. Parts begin to ache. And you will find it extremely difficult not to give in to the tendency of the organism to move, even when you have told it not to, with your almighty egotistic power. And the very shortest demonstration of that is the exercise we have done before, which you can all do if you like simultaneously, now it won't take long. You breathe all the air out of your lungs, pointing the onions, if any, away from your next of kin, and you swear by your almighty ego power that you will never breathe in again. You needn't worry because you will. But do the very best you can. Breathe all the air out of your bodies. Blow it out. Then don't breathe in. And swear with all the sincerity you can command. Which isn't much actually. But do the best you can. Internally swearing I will never breathe in again ever. And count in your mind and see how many seconds you can actually hold that breath out and notice what happens to your diaphragm which apparently begins to have a mind of its own are you doing the exercise? if so, nod the head not too violently in case it falls off has anybody found that in fact when you hold the breath out something inside you fights you to breathe in again. If you do that exercise repeatedly, you will become totally convinced that there is a force making you live and that your egotism is not powerful enough to stop you living. And if you are clever enough, like some super egotists, like uh, the men that climbed Everest, so that you can actually hold your breath until you faint, which some very strong will fellows can do, the moment you fainted, your breathing carries on on its own. And you come round, not dead, but alive, and your breathing is still going on. And that shows you that in the organism, energy is working to perpetuate your existence. Now that energy is desire. It is from the Father, from that absolute sentient power. To conquer that energy is to conquer absolutely yourself now let's see what the purpose is to have a desire at all quite simply it is to compel you into an experiential situation the desire is a movement of the absolute energy to make organisms get into situations which will be the occasions of informing the organism and the information, the forming within the organism by the experience is the occasion of meditation. You have to meditate on what happens in your experience because the same energy that pushes you into the experience also pushes you at mental levels to think about it. And this thinking about one's experience is called meditation. So, the function of the desire is to force us into progressive higher and higher levels of self-understanding through the hard experiential cycle of events. So the idea of stilling desire in the sense of quietness so there isn't any is a very forlorn hope except for a very, very, very few people who have already been through the mill, who have actually come to the point where they have consummated their days 
and they know that the desire energy that is in them is actually divine spiritual energy pushing them along an experiential cycle. Then they can say, I, egotistically, will not interfere with this desire. I will still, my egoic tendency, to the best of my ability, and let the desire of the absolute conduct itself in me for my further evolution. In other words, you cannot still desire. What you can do is refine your understanding of its object, if you're lucky. If you work hard, and particularly if you want to refine your perceptions, the wanting is part of the movement of the self-educating energy. Now, let's tie this in with the second part. The question about the intelligent use of egotism. First we will define the ego. First we will define it in the Freudian sense. Freud would place that ego between two other forces. We will put it for the mnemonic here. The ego, when you say I, you touch your chest. I am here. Say I am and touch yourself. The automatic economy is to touch yourself somewhere on the chest. There aren't many people that go, as I was saying. <laughs> are there? I can't guarantee that about Gail, huh? He's capable of anything out of awkwardness. But one of the things a clown does in a circus is the opposite of your expectancy. So he says, thinking about you yesterday, instead of doing this. Reverse it. Do the opposite. That's called being funny. It's really being logical and practicing certain types of inversion of function. Now let's consider egotism. Jammed between a primordial force, the id force, the it, the unmentionable, the sexual drive, the coronation of the psychologist, and the imposition of society trying to restrain that sexual force, that imposing force being called the super-ego. It is that which sits on top of your egoic awareness and tells it what it ought not to do, and what <coughs> it ought to do. So we would then say, in the lower tongue there is a force, the id, the libido, the desire force, that libido means the form of wanting, of loving something. Loving not in the highest sense, but simply liking to do something. And then in the head, through the pressure of other people who don't like to see you enjoying yourself, and who therefore invent rules, and then logically are required to accept the rules for themselves that they are trying to impose on you. So, a group of human beings will bend the knee to rules of restraint upon their libido, upon their primordial urge to enjoyment. They will accept the restraints, providing everybody accepts them. So it's a sort of continuous conspiracy to contradict everybody, including myself, rather than let anybody, not myself, enjoy himself unrestrainedly. And this restraining force is called the super-ego in Freudian terminology. Now, it's rather an oversimplified thing. But it does explain in some degree the tension in the egoic awareness. The ego consciousness is sharpened the more conflict there is between your primordial drive, which basically shows itself in the desire for food and sexual relations, jammed between that drive force and the restraining forces of human society, the tension induced in the organism creates what we call egoic consciousness. And it appeared to Freud that this ego was a very, very unhappy thing, because there was no possible way for an egoic, that is a self-conscious being, to be happy in a society built on restraints. 
because the object of the video of the primordial urge is not to be restrained. As William Blake said, damn, braces, bless, relaxes. Get rid of the restraints and spontaneously enjoy yourself. I'll remind you that in the early Christian church, they used to have a feast, an agape feast of love, in which everybody enjoyed themselves because they believed sincerely that God had sacrificed himself for humanity and all human beings and our brothers and all the slaves could ignore the bosses. And they were so delighted with this that in the agape feast they clutched each other and they kissed each other and they fell naturally into more and more deep intimacies in this agape feast so that it resembled in large degree a pre-Christian orgy like the Bacchanal. And it was said officially by one bishop, the sound of osculation in the church during the Agape festival was so loud that the bishop could not hear himself uh, giving instructions about the next element of the procedure. And therefore, a rule was made, this kissing of each other that Christians indulge in has to be given up. And instead of that, a form of the cross will be circulated amongst the congregation and you can kiss that instead. And that is the historical origin of the kissing of the cross. Now those of you who know the symbology of the cross and the depths of significance in it will understand why the Agape festival of the early Christians just had to be stopped. Because they were indistinguishable from pre-Christian pagan orgies. Now, the rules were made by the pressures of events from outside upon the individual members of the congregation. And the congregation accepted them only because they couldn't bear anybody else, you see, else, you see, to be enjoying themselves. We can all accept enjoying our own self, but we cannot so easily accept that anybody else does it too. So the, the conflict between the super-ego or moralizing forces and the primordial drive forces of food and sex produces in the organism a tension, a very strong tension. And this tension makes the organism aware that it is. You are only aware that you are an individual egoic being because of the conflict. Without that conflict, you would not be aware at all. Suppose we do one of the dark room experiments that have been popular in the last 20 years and we float a man blindfolded and with earplugs in in a bath of blood warm water so that we reduce the external stimulus situation nearly to zero. What happens to that man? He loses egoic reference. The mind starts throwing up all kinds of fantastic information but it is not held together in an orderly manner. And instead of being like a one, an individual who can say, I am, there is rather a fantastical army, I mean fantastical, literally, there is an army of impulses that come up in forms, and those forms proliferate, they breed, and they produce more and more forms till you have an infinity of fantastical forms with no determinable edge and no control. That's what happens in such an experiment. You have de-egotized yourself by submitting to the experiment. So we go on to the second question. What is the function of enlightened egotism? The ego consciousness, a product of conflict between moral restraints and primordial natural impulses, this ego consciousness guarantees that you shall be able to focus on your organism and to keep it separate from other organisms and thereby to conduct an evolutionary process for yourself independently of the processes of other beings. Now you know that one of our local teams was banned recently because 
its uh, admirers behaved themselves very badly. And some members of the team said they were not responsible for the behavior of their fans. But in fact, you see there an illustration of what the great philosophers have said. The crowd, the mass, the herd mentality functions below the level of the enlightened egotist. It's not a new idea, this. There's been a lot of talk about it since Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, <coughs> Heidegger and people like that. But this idea is recorded in the 6th century BC in Lao Tse's famous words, the people are straw dogs fit for burning at sacrifices. There is there a very clear distinction between an egotistically enlightened, separated consciousness and the mass of human protoplasm which has not so separated so that when it gets together in thousands of time instead of functioning like an intelligent individual it functions like the gathering swine and rushes off precipitously in some undetermined direction and perishes in a ridiculous conflict like some of the marches that have recently been banned could have done you all know that when you are in a group of people, especially a large group in a 50,000 crowd watching a football match, I've done that once in my life experimentally, I don't need to do it again, and you actually feel your ears vibrating with howls of derision and praise about all kinds of silly activities going on on a relatively small rectangle, and everybody's pushing and pulling and sweating and sucking throat tablets. And nobody has any individual personal responsibility. So we say, quite correctly, the behavior of the crowd is below the behavior of the separated individual. The reason is that the mass of energy in the crowd is not separatively restrained as it is in the separated organism and consequently the biomagnetic fields the energies of life flow out beyond the restraining limits of your skin surface and they begin to commingle together and they make a vast sea if you look in the book of revelations you'll find there a description of a sea and this sea is people in the mass and it's a sea of murmurings, a sea of discontent, a sea of derision. Have you heard a crowd deriding someone who makes a mistake in the Olympic Games or in the football match? And yet if you take any single man out from that crowd and say, what do you think about the crowd? And they say, oh, they're awful, aren't they? Of course, I wouldn't be there if you weren't at that. Mm -hmm. There's always an excuse by the individual for being in the crowd. Now, by means of the tension generated between the moral imperative and the unrestrained life impulse, the organism is ordered in two directions simultaneously. If you'll just look around at each other and look at the most beautiful ones you can see, unless you've got an interest in the non-beautiful, which is also a kind of taste, uh, a mark of discrimination, because those who are the prettiest get flattered the most and give you the least good performance. I don't know whether you know that rule. It's always more intelligent to be kind to the starved than to the well-fed. You know that rule. But look around, and you will feel an impulse in you. Now, if you were to say, let this impulse operate without restraint, immediately we could have a Christian agape festival in this room now. But you have been so educated, so conditioned by your parents and your teachers and the commands of the law, that when you do look, you tend to look away as well, you see. It's a nice... Mm. You see, it's very interesting. The light that goes into my right eye contracts the left side of my neck muscles here so that if that light shines this contracts and the head turns right there. 
that that one shines in this eye, this muscle contracts, and do that. So if you see a, a beautiful lady, or a beautiful gentleman, if there is one, if you're not careful, your eyes will flicker. If it's very good looking, you immediately take it away and start thinking what you would be doing if it weren't for the super again. <laughs> now, the reason you think like this is because you have been trained within a society of forbidders who can't bear anybody to endure themselves because no work gets done. One of the early things that the church found was that that happy fellow, the bucolic chappy, uh, in May, you know, nuts in May, here we go gathering, there's a lot of ploughing to be done. But when the sun starts warming the earth, is it ploughing you think about? Or is it twining little fingers and going down the road like this? And so, in order to get the ploughing down, and later on the reaping down, there had to be some commands invented. Who invented them? Not the fellows that like enjoying themselves. The fellows that like to store the fruits of the harvest so that they won't starve through the winter. Now, the enlightened egotist is a person who knows the function of the ego to be a means of rescuing him from the mass response, the crowd response, the subhuman response. By means of the skin surface, you have a process going on inside, relatively insulated from the processes in other organisms. If you want to recognize the value of the ego as a reference point to rescue you, and for no other purpose, just to rescue you from the crowd, you can then treat the ego properly. The god Shiva, who is the lord of the dance, in Indian religion, dances on a dwarf, and that dwarf is alive, and that dwarf is your ego. And the word dance means judgment. It's from Dan to judge. If you hadn't got an ego center, you could not make an independent judgment. You could only make a crowd judgment. That is to say, you would flow with the movement of the collective life force. So the function of the ego is to rescue you from crowd responses. It has no other function. Once you are so rescued, you have to keep the ego from itself doing the invert error of the crowd. The crowd's error is to rush about and do something usually destructive, but as a mass, with no individual responsibility. The ego's tendency is to do something brilliant independently of the crowd, and then require itself to be worshipped because of that. Once it has been understood that the ego is a reference point, and not something that has to be worshipped, but something that has to be used then you can transcend the idea that a well-developed ego or a well-developed performance on the flute or the piccolo or the piano or the harp, that that well-developed performance means that other egos have to worship you. That idea has to go. That idea must be got rid of. The function of the ego is to rescue you from the crowd so that you can develop a type of judgment in which you insulated from the indeterminable mass responses of emotion, make an intelligent, separative assessment of reality, and do not require other egotistic beings or the crowd to worship you because of your ability to separate yourself. There we have the first two points. Stilling desire is not possible. Refining desire is possible. And the ultimate of all desires is to desire that for you which the infinite, absolute, sentient power wills for you. Because what it wills is your total development, your evolution towards a state of total reflexive self-conscious 
self-determined creative function. That is his will. And to become aware of that will, so that everything you do is for your evolutionary development, and is not simply for wasting time by amusing yourself with external pleasures derived from contingent stimuli, when you have understood this, your desires have reached their ultimate state of refinement. They are the same as the desire of God for you. When you desire what God desires for you, you desire your evolution towards a perfectly free state in which whatever you do will be intelligently determined by you in total separation from the mob impulses of the crowd. Now let's look at the religion behind all religions. All the major religions of the world can be shown, whether etymologically or conceptually, to have derived from the same source. They all derive from an observation of a process inside man and outside. In the external world, through the observation of the cycles of nature, through the seasons, through the rotation of planets, through the wheeling of the stars around the pole star, and internally to observe the cycles of events, of the arising and falling away of desires in a cyclic manner. Just as we observe in the sexual behaviour of animals, a force in the solar system with the sun striking the earth at a certain angle, at a certain time of the year, we call it spring, and at that time up come the flowers. They have no choice, they must come up because that sun force has acted upon them and the rain has acted upon them and the hidden life in them must out and in the same way it must out in the animals so that they must then copulate and breed more of their kind under this <coughs> impulse jointly of the sun and the moon. The sun is the father, the moon is the mother and the earth is the nurse of these cosmic forces. And by studying those cycles in the external world, and then in the internal world, as the cycles of desire correlated with the external cycles, you discover the origin of all religions. Now, all religion has no other purpose than the freeing of the fallen. The freeing of the fallen. Whether you talk about Hindu moksha or Christian salvation, Whatever it is in any religion, it is the freeing of the fallen. Now, could anybody other than the fallen need freeing? Answer, no. The absolute sentient power itself cannot go into bondage because it is infinitely transcendent of any limits that might be conceived. But there has been a fall into identification. Every major religion, by major religion I mean the religions, a handful of them, from which other religions have borrowed their tenets without thorough examination. But every major religion says the same thing. The rescue of the fallen from their fallen state, and to be fallen is to be identified with the periphery of your being instead of the centre of your being. Now, if you draw a circle on a piece of paper or in your imagination and then rotate it, you will make a sphere. Visualise the sphere in your mind and say that is the simplest representation that is possible of an islanded zone of sentient power. Each human individual is such a sphere a sphere of influence. A certain amount of the absolute sentient power has ensphered itself in the human being and that human being is called a soul because it is solo power. The power of the absolute sentient spirit has encapsulated itself so that each human being is actually, I mean in act, in action, actually the infinite eternal spirit there humanizing itself in process 
of becoming individually self-conscious. Now, in the process of making two spheres or more, in the fact of the infinite condensing to make two or more spheres, arose the possibility of an external stimulus, where two can strike against each other. When this happens, we have the instance of peripheral stimulation of a zone of sentience. You are a zone of sentience. When you come near another zone and your edges strike, you give each other a stimulus. This stimulus is called contingent stimulus with touch. But that contingent stimulus can, if you do not stop it, cause a reaction from within of your own sentient power which is none different from that of the absolute and your consciousness then rushes to the perimeter of your being and in posting itself on the perimeter it becomes formally conditioned by the nature of the stimulus. Now at the centre of your being, not on the periphery, in the very innermost centre of your being there is a pure, utterly unadulterated, absolute power of free will. And it is entirely creative. The centre of your being is a creative, intelligent will. But if you get carried by the external stimulus, struck from outside, so that your attention, the tension in you, flows to the perimeter of your being and rests on your skin surface instead of in your centre. You are now no longer a free-willed creative spirit. You are a dependent, contingently conditioned slave of the stimulus situation. Now, that is all that religion says and nothing more. The implications of that will multiply themselves into a series of exercises called prayers, meditations, rituals, and so on. But those are merely methods of convincing yourselves that the fall is a fall into peripheralization of consciousness with the subsequent loss of your own innermost creativity. Each being sitting on a chair in this room is absolutely self-determined and creative within its innermost centre. But through the educational process, being born as a human being in a human society, the consciousness of that human being has been carried to the periphery and made to consult the mass, the crowd, the government, the social determinants of behaviour, and in the process has substituted for the innermost free spiritual will the determinations of external orders, the moral imperative. Now that is the form. The only difference between one religion and another, whether Hinduism, Islam, Taoism, Confucianism, Zen, Christianity in its thousands of forms, the only difference is a matter of terminology and nothing but. In disguised terms, they all talk about how to become free from peripheralization, how to discover creativity in one's own centre, and how to become that which we know we fundamentally are. The big initiatory short sentence is become what thou art. What thou art is a free centrally self-determined creative spiritual intelligence. That's nice, isn't it? You couldn't expect much more for the relatively small price you pay for it. But when you come to examine the inertias that peripheralize you, you have an enemy. And this enemy is variously named in different religions, but only the terminology differs. Your body is made of protoplasm. That protoplasm is a colloid nearly all water. And because of water, and because water is H2O, and because hydrogen has only got one electron, it is very unstable, and therefore super sensitive to impressions. 
That water, which comes most of your protoplasm, is super sensitive. And your protoplasm, with its biomagnetic tendency to hold on to its experience, is the perfect recording material. You know, on a little tape cassette, you can have a full orchestra playing lots of blasting type Germanic Beethoven music on a narrow bit of tape. And that tape has only got iron oxide on it, stuck on with a bit of gum. And the whole of the orchestra is there. And your protoplasm, you have a recording substance far more subtle, and it can do something that actually the tape doesn't do. It records emotion. It records thought, because thought is a form of behavior, of energy. Your protoplasm records absolutely every formative stimulus that it suffers, every manipulation ideationally in the thinking process, and every emotion placed upon every such idea. Now that is the enemy. The friend is the enemy. By means of this record, you are able to establish that you are an individual egoic separative being, because you can refer to your own experience as being your experience, and not the identical experience with another being. But unfortunately, that it's a very funny thing. You all know the image often used by Freudians about the unconscious mind, where they describe the human psyche as uh, one-tenth conscious, like an iceberg, and nine-tenths of the iceberg is under the water, and that is your unconscious. The image would be all right if you modified it a little bit. The top part, the visible parts of the iceberg, draw a triangle for it. And then say, instead of going down nine-tenths more, it goes down to infinity. But then why do we think about it as going down at all? That's a flat earth concept. Now project the lines of the triangle, there's your triangle, and project these lines both ways to infinity, and this one to infinity, and that one to infinity, and what do you get? You get a hexonic structure that goes to infinity. What you get is that you are the center of an infinite ocean of sentient power. And that this infinite ocean of sentient power is a continuum. Now the beautiful and horrible thing about a continuum is this. A continuum has no parts. It is not made of discrete particles, and therefore it is in no sense anywhere separate from itself. And the law of the continuum is this. Whatever is anywhere is everywhere. In other words, a motion of power initiated in one place must necessarily be present, must propagate itself into all places within this continuum. Now here is the enemy, is it not? Because if you think you've got a private thought in consciousness, but that thought is a vibration in an infinite continuum, Every other being has that same thought. Isn't that so? But if they don't focus on it, they don't know they've got it, and we call it unconscious. In the same way, if you don't focus on your own psychological content, you don't know you've got it. The very small amount of your consciousness upon which you do focus is so small you should feel ashamed of yourself for having such a meagre mind if ever you were to get around to thinking about it. But if you were to extend your lines of thought, you would find a very strange thing. That your thoughts and the thoughts of everyone else are absolutely mutually reciprocally interpenetrating. And it is only your focus on your own private egoic purpose that insulates you from the infinities of information from all the other similarly constituted egoic structures. So that if you think you have a private purpose, that thought is an error. It's a convenient one for businessmen and so on, but it is an error. When you have that thought, 
you can often not account for the fact that your very best egoic efforts to do something are defeated. By what? Accident? Ill will of other beings? No, much deeper than that. Any will of a finite ego that aims to rule the absolute sentient power or any part of it other than its own little bit is automatically opposed by the infinite power itself. So that the egoic structure cannot even conceivably ever attain a position of total dictatorship over all other beings. Even Hitler didn't have any ambition beyond a thousand years to dictatorship. He wasn't quite so stupid as to imagine it to extend beyond that because he did know enough about history to know that the memories of the human beings are not very strong. But to attempt to control infinity for the finite is doomed to failure because the whole process of the egoic being is not confined to that being although it appears to be consciously, because being a modality of a continuum, it necessarily radios its intention at the level beyond the triangle, the so-called unconscious, to every other being, who picking it up unconsciously, translate the unconscious pick-up into a subconscious, and then conscious opposition so that you automatically, if your motive is wrong, breed your own opposition. So the enemy is the inertia of unconscious processes of myriads of individuals and of the infinite field itself. And that enemy is pure energy, vibrating, surging along, trying to do things like it has always tried to do, four millions of years. And its name is the worm that dieth not. Because it goes twisting through space and it tries to engulf and draw in egotistic energies of the modality beings that we call human beings to its own purposes. So how can you possibly defeat it? The answer to that one is first you study the theory of it and then you start practicing. Now the theory of it is that there is an absolute sentient power. That absolute sentient power vibrates and in the vibration modalizes an infinitude of organisms, some of which we are. And that we can do nothing successfully without permission of that absolute. That is the theory. So the question is, how do we practice conforming to the intention of the absolute evolutionary force for us. Now in all the great religions you have the same statement. I'll give it to you in the short form that Christ gives it. Inasmuch as you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. That is, being in a continuum, any organism making a decision to think or feel or will in a certain way is doing it within that infinite field of power of which it is itself a modality is doing it to that power and if it doesn't know about that power the fact remains that it is doing it in that power to that power and if it directs its energy towards another finite being such as it believes erroneously that it is itself in the moment of acting on that finite being it is doing it to the continuum. In as much as you do it to the least of these, says the continuum, you do it to me. So it is not possible for a human being, by whatever manipulations of propagandas or gossips or whatever, or friendlinesses or unfriendlinesses, to act upon another individual without acting within and on the continuum of power of which his organism is itself a modality. And in so doing, he has acted upon all that power because the continuum has no parts, and therefore the continuum will respond to that action with a corrective one by moving economically those particular forms 
which would be most appropriate for the refutation of this private purpose. Now can you see that there can't be any other religion than this? The attainment of a free state of creativity which was lost to the contingent stimulus. You see, Eve is alright until an external serpent with the gift of the gab talks to her. And that moment her consciousness is extroverted. She is peripheralized. She forgets her own creativity. And she bites on something external. And that is the fall. If she had remembered her internal creativity, would she have needed to bite an external to know good and evil? Do you really need a hard apple to test the hardness of your teeth? Or isn't it good enough to bite your own teeth? Try biting your own teeth. Bite on your molars or something. You've got some. And see what happens. When you bite. Do you need an external? Or are you not sufficient in your educational capacities to enlighten yourself? Do you need somebody else to do that? Or can you do it? You can do it. You can, from within, from your very centre, create the conditions of your own education. But if you don't do that, you will wait until somebody else kicks you on the shin. And then if you fall into peripheralization, you will resent that kick on the shin as unmerited, unwarranted, unjust. And you will further peripheralize yourself by being annoyed with the external person instead of being annoyed with your own sleepiness that you left your shin in a position where it could be kicked. The essence of good Zen practice of the great samurai when the blow came is not to be there. Don't blame your opponent for viciously bashing you in the nose. Just remove the nose. Now in ordinary western boxing you know that's the rule. It's called riding the punch. A very alert fellow, if he's practiced well, you punch him with all your body weight, but as that blow is coming, he's moving backwards. So you cannot land your body weight on him. Whereas a stupid fellow who doesn't know the rules runs onto you. You don't even need to hit him, you just hold your arm out and wait. Blaming other people for the misfortunes that happen to us is a very, very fruitless and stupid error because it further peripheralizes our attention and makes us progressively more and more dependent on the behavior of other beings and thus more and more a member of the crowd. Now, there is a big rule. Imagine the infinite cannot operate particularly except through the particular. Can you see the logic of that? If the infinite operated only infinitely we wouldn't be here, would we? Infinite operations have no measure. They have no edge. So, in order to manifest, manifest means make fast in order to evaluate, in order to count, we have to precipitate to finite. Limit being, and then push the energy from the infinite through the finite. First we make a sphere, then we push the energy of the infinite through the sphere and then the sphere dances or jumps up and down or sings or whatever. The infinite can express itself particularly only through the particular. And there is only one being on earth that can, at this stage of evolution, think about that and that is the human being. There is only one life on earth. The animals can't do it, the vegetables can't do it, bacteria can't do it. We can do it. We can think about it, we can talk about it, we can meditate on it. Only one being, the human being, is fit to act as the particular through which the universal pursues its creative intent. And only one planet in the solar system has human beings on it, and this is it. And there is no planet in the solar system 
other than the earth that can support an evolving life like a human life. The conditions are not right. We have the correct orbital position in relation to the sun to be what we are. And we are all emissaries, things sent out from the infinite to express particularly the universal. Because the universal cannot speak particularly except through a particular organism. And the function of the evolving human being is to serve as the particular through which the universal speaks. That is the meaning in all religions. You are born for service. That is the statement, God made us for himself. The infinite posits us as separated, finite, unique individual spheres in order to push through us his creative intent and not in order to enslave us to continue the stimuli from other such spheres. So this internal listening process is the key. Inside us, remember we are precipitates of alternating compression-decompression intentions and alternate compression-decompression is sound and therefore if we listen to ourselves internally in the innermost we will always find we have an intention to evolve towards freedom towards greater self-awareness and towards greater creativity but if we go to the outside to the periphery we will find something exactly opposite you will find uh, an evening class on how to do pottery you know or how to paint abstract art how to do photography how to study Descartes it's all outside but if you go to that outside lesson and take your outside with you and not your inside the only good you're doing is helping to keep the crowd in being to serve as a kind of universal manure for the few individuals who do not do that whereas if you were to take your central creativity to such an occasion all you will do is seriously annoy the man in charge. <laughs> I thought Eugene that you said it one time, and probably confused with you, but I thought the general work was the particular and the universal work was the relative. Relative means particular normal. Yeah. <laughs> it means in relation to particular ends. You see, the absolute is not the relative, is it? So the realm of the relative is the realm of particulars in relation. You see how very careful it is to watch terminology. Terms have been fabricated for definite usage by definite groups of people. You know, one of the earliest things that happened when Israel was formed was the formation of a language control bureau. If you control language, you control concepts. If you control concepts, you control people who accept concepts. Whereas if you go to the innermost center of your being, you will find that you have a capacity there to create a vocabulary from within, and this vocabulary will turn out to be the absolute vocabulary to which you will refer. You remember William Blake had a row as an angel on one occasion and came out with a solution when the angel complained you are imposing on me with your ideas he said we impose on each other see we are talking relative English at the moment although English has a very complex origin but in accepting the English language we have accepted the history of the thought of many races Anglo-Saxon, Jewton, Dane and Roman whatever other queer creatures invaded this land, brought with them their vocabulary, and with their vocabulary concepts, and with those concepts restraints upon your creativity so you have to examine these terms, and you have to strip them down to their prime roots I was talking to a girl today whose native language is German, and the word zischelisch arose in it to do with Zisha means certain. 
and she didn't like that I said that the ER at the end of it meant error, mistake. So she began to go through all the German words she knew with ER in them, and she was becoming more and more convinced that it wasn't true. What she was doing was proving the opposite. And when I said to her, but look at the ich, the I-C-H in it. Ah, that is I. Look at S-I-C-H, this means myself. And the E-R at the end of it becomes automatically erroneous. Because it is a statement by a finite. And claims to be certain. Now there's absolutely nothing whatever certain about the finite. Because the finite is a compound of motions of infinity. And if the infinite alters the display of those motions, the characteristics of the finite individual change whether that individual conscious mind likes it or not. So in fact, you look inside your mind when you listen to words, do you not actually find, in your own case, that your mind is looking for what it calls significances? Isn't it? And is it not going back over its history of usages? And have not the usages of the terms been compared upon them by social forces? So unless you examine your language very carefully, are you not enslaved by the crowd? If you go to the average university professor and give him an etymological route, you say, but that isn't the way we use it these days. I had a, a debate with some scientists recently uh, about the nature of reality. Are numbers real or not real? And is pi ratio real or not real? And is phi real or not real? And throughout a good hour's argument, they did not once define the word real. What did they mean by it? They were unconsciously enslaved by an atomistic concept that there are some irreducible particular particles that cannot be destroyed and these are the reals. But there aren't any such particles, are there? Because since nuclear explosions, those particles have become way because of probability in a continuum which has no units. Now you can't count without units. But supposing your unit is what? A wavelength like you have in a, a crystal. Some of you have very posh, expensive crystal watches, don't you? They keep good time and only lose four seconds in 3,000 years or something. <laughs> but they're not accurate, are they? You see, unless you have a primary, unalterable unit, your mathematics is rubbish. And you can't have a real count unless something is unalterable. But the only unalterable is the absolute itself. Now, how will you take infinity as your unit? One brilliant Jewish gentleman, Cantor, thought about that, mathematically. A lovely little number was invented, Aleph Null. Aleph Null means that number which added, subtracted, divided, or multiplied by itself remains precisely what it was when you started, namely zero. But it's a real number. It's the only real number, actually. It's a no number. It is the infinite, the supreme unit. But what does the word unit mean when you say it like that? It means an infinite ocean of power in process of self-negation in order to produce particularizations which are the basis of peripheralized continuous accounting. What happens when you do that with your mind? If you do it very sincerely, you'll finish up with a Japanese Zen type, no mind. Which is the only kind of mind worth having. Because in that no mind you can posit anything whatever. By an act of purely central free will. Now, you cannot still desire absolutely, you can refine the object of it. The correct use of enlightened negativism is to serve as a reference point through which the absolute creates new heavens, new earths through you. It is never to be allowed to dictate. You keep your foot on it. 
and that is the function of world religions. Would you like to go and meditate on that, huh? Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.